So we had in my family these two completely diametrically opposed ways of dealing with illness. We had the, you know, completely wallow in it and medicate yourself to death and have everybody rolling their eyes at you, you know, on one side. And on the other side was, you know, no, nothing is ever wrong with me, you know, and, and absolutely never go to the doctor under any circumstances and everything can be shaken off, basically. Hey there. Welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We've had such a great response to our dysautonomia series so far. At the time I'm recording this intro at 3.30 on Thursday afternoon, we've already had 435 plays since we launched on Tuesday. I'm blown away. This is the fifth and last episode in our series honoring Dysautonomia Awareness Month. If you haven't heard the other four episodes, go back and take a listen. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode, so keep an eye on your podcast feeds or on InSicknessPod.com. On In Sickness and In Health, I plan to feature a wide variety of health experiences. But because dysautonomia is personal for me, I wanted to kick off the show with a series of interviews about something very close to my heart. I'm so glad I did. We've gotten such great feedback, and I've even tricked a few people into learning a thing or two. This podcast, or any of its associated content, is not medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I wish you a lot of luck. If you want to know why I think these topics are so important, go back and listen to episode zero, Welcome to In Sickness and In Health. I explain why I started the podcast, what I've learned along the way, and what I hope the show will be. We're all going through this together, but I cannot stress enough just how different we all are, even if we were to have identical medical files. There are so many factors that go into shaping a person's experience of health and illness. Just because something worked for one person does not mean it will work for you or anyone else. I want to ask my audience to respect the very personal decisions of my guests and remember that the choices of others do not reflect or affect your own choices. This is especially true about diets, which we talk about a little bit in this episode. The approach to illness is really neatly split in half in a way that is frequently at war, you know, in my thinking about being sick. Um, so on one side of the family, I had a grandmother who was just a complete and total hypochondriac. You know, she was constantly ill, constantly complaining about it. Any little thing was a giant thing. You know, she took more medications, you know, than anyone you could possibly imagine with really no need for them. And when she, you know, eventually went into nursing care at the end of her life, they were sort of horrified, you know, and said her doctor really was irresponsible because she doesn't need most of these things. You know, so I think she had, you know, some dependencies. Um, but I just remember illness being a real major focal point of her life and her complaining, even though there was very little actually wrong with her and she lived a pretty long and active life. On the other side <laughs> of the family, you have my other grandmother um, who absolutely would not go to the doctor for any reason, like just absolutely refused. No matter what was going on, she was fine and, you know, strong and healthy and there was never anything wrong. And when at the end of her life, 
you know, she finally ended up in the hospital, they discovered she had had about three heart attacks that she had never mentioned oh or, or gotten treatment for. And, you know, obviously they weren't fatal heart attacks, but, you know, there was all this damage and they said, you know, this person has obviously had heart attacks and she just didn't do anything about them. So it has created a really interesting war in my head around my own illness and around illness in general. Um, when I do get sick or when something is wrong, I feel tremendous guilt. <laughs> I also instinctively jump to the fear that I'm being a hypochondriac. So sometimes I don't go to the doctor when I should because I'm convinced they're going to tell me that nothing is wrong and mm -hmm. I'll have wasted their time. Um, this hardly ever actually happens. <laughs> and I remember once saying to somebody, you know, I wish just once a doctor would tell me that I'm actually being a hypochondriac. It would be nice, you know, not to have it be some weird disease instead. Um, but yeah, it's very complicated. Like there's almost a feeling of failure around being ill and at the same time, almost a triumphant, see, I really was sick. I'm not being a hypochondriac, you know, like my other grandmother. So it gets very complicated. That's Kathy. She's a musician and mother who lives with the autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's syndrome, dysautonomia that includes postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS, complex chronic headaches, and the still very poorly understood bladder condition interstitial cystitis. If you've never heard of or don't know a lot about these conditions, I put some links in the show notes to find out more. Kathy will explain more about what these mean for her in a bit, but if you want to know more about dysautonomia and its various forms, go back and listen to episode one, Dysautowata, with Dysautonomia International's president, Lauren Stiles. She gives us a crash course on what dysautonomia is, and we talk about the diagnostic delay that many patients face, her own diagnostic odyssey, and some of the research that her organization has been able to fund. Before we get to the interview, I want to introduce a concept that we will be referencing a lot on the show. It's called the spoon theory, and it comes from an essay written by Christine Miserandino. As a young woman in the piece, she describes the process of explaining to her friend what living with the chronic fatigue of lupus is like for her. Chronic fatigue among chronic illness patients is common and very underappreciated by the medical community. There's also not a whole lot we can do about it. Flawed though they are, we have conventions like the 1 through 10 pain scale for talking about pain, but there's no language for talking about the kind of fatigue we experience. Use of the spoon theory to talk about fatigue and our limited energy resources has made its way into patient communities, and we'll be having plenty of conversations on the podcast where spoon management comes up. I'll link to the original essay in the show notes, but since Kathy mentions the spoon theory in our conversation, I'll let her explain just what that means. So the spoon theory is a theory of chronic illness that helps explain chronic illness to people who don't have it. And the premise is that you start every day with a certain amount of spoons, a limited amount of spoons, and everything you do, and the big spoons or small, represent your how your much energy, energy for you have for the day. Exactly. That's right. Um, you only get that many spoons, and every little thing you do, like no matter how small it seems, takes a spoon. So you get out of bed, that takes a spoon. You shower, that takes a spoon. You know, you prepare breakfast, etc. And when your spoons are gone, they are gone. There's no replenishing them, and there's no way to get them back. Um, and sometimes you can borrow them from future days, but there's pretty big consequences big for doing consequences. that. Yeah, sometimes if you spend all your spoons and then some, you spend three days in bed because you did that. And one last thing. I want to take a moment to encourage you to get a flu shot this year, if you can. 
In the United States alone, the flu kills 36,000 people a year, and more than 200,000 people wind up in the hospital because of it. We hear a lot about the very, very young and the very, very old who are at risk for these kinds of complications, but there are millions of other people at risk because of primary or acquired immune deficiencies. It's likely that someone you know and love is at risk. People like Alana, who in episode two talked about the challenges of living with a primary immune deficiency disease. And people like today's guest, Kathy, and others with autoimmune diseases who take medications that impair the immune system. Then there's people like me. I don't have any immune deficiencies, but getting sick with anything puts me at risk of serious complications due to my underlying chronic health conditions. Others cannot get the vaccine due to problems with their immune system or an allergy to the ingredients. Those people rely on herd immunity and the people who are able to get vaccinated. The flu is not fun for anyone, but for some people, the flu can be really dangerous. Contrary to popular belief, the flu vaccine does not cause you to contract a mini version of the flu. Some people experience flu-like symptoms after the vaccine due to immune system activity. I'm one of those people, but I get the flu shot anyway because I know those symptoms will pass within a couple days, and it's a whole heck of a lot better than getting the actual flu. Many of the major pharmacies even offer flu shots right in the store. So please, get a flu shot if you can. Don't forget to wash your hands this flu season, and make sure you cover your mouth when you cough and sneeze, preferably with your elbow and not your hand. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. This is one of my favorite interviews that I've done so far. Kathy had so many interesting things to say, some of which made me rethink some things about my own condition and how I handle it. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did, and stay with us until the end because Kathy actually shares with us two of the songs that she wrote while processing the grief of her illness. So my first and main diagnosis is rheumatoid arthritis. And my particular flavor of that is um, severe seropositive rheumatoid arthritis. Um, Seropositive means that it shows up in the blood work, you know, that I have multiple, you know, markers, antibodies, things like that, that, you know, are completely conclusive, which in a way makes me one of the very lucky ones. You know, there are people who, you know, can't get a diagnosis for years because their blood work isn't showing the classic markers. Um, So I'm lucky in that respect. Uh, What's unlucky is that people with severe seropositive RA tend to have poorer outcomes, Um, you know, shorter lifespans, more complications. It's harder to get under control. So it's it's sort of a mixed bag. You know, I'm I'm grateful that I have definite answers, you know, because that's one of the most frustrating things about being sick is not knowing what's going on. You know, but there's a flip side to that. Um, So that's my RA. Um, Then in addition to that, I have secondary Sjogren's syndrome which is an autoimmune disease, also uh, just as RA is, and it affects the moisture-producing glands of the body. So things like your tear ducts, your salivary glands, um, and pretty much anything else you can think of in terms of your organs and systems that produces any sort of moisture or mucus or things like that are affected. Uh, This is another area where I've been lucky because it's incredibly mild, like I would never have even known it existed if I hadn't tested positive for the antibody to it. Which is another thing that a lot of people who actually have Sjogren's have a hard time, you know, having those antibodies don't show up and they have to wind up getting crazy things biopsied. Exactly. And I had the opposite experience. I had these antibodies show up with very few symptoms. And um, the symptoms that I did have, you know, were fairly well controlled, you know, by the same medicines that I was taking for the RA. 
Um, the only real change that I've seen is that I don't wear my contact lenses anymore. You know, I wear my glasses. So that was a rough change, you know, because I just don't make enough tears now. Um, and I have to see the dentist and the eye doctor a lot more often than I used to, you know, every few months, just so they can make sure um, I'm not getting dental damage or my eyes. My eyes are aging a little faster than is normal, you know, because of the tear ducts. Um, but the Sjogren's has not been that big a deal. Um, so those are kind of the two big autoimmune things. And then um, these autoimmune things like to invite friends. They sure do. <laughs> so, I would say once a year or so, I get diagnosed with some new random thing. And uh, usually it seems totally unrelated. And then I'll talk to my rheumatologist and he'll say, sure, I see that all the time. And it's very weird. So uh, I have a bladder condition called interstitial cystitis, which is an inflammation of the bladder lining. Um, and some pelvic floor dysfunction that goes with that, you know, just the whole area kind of being unhappy, which um, you can imagine treating that is not fun. <laughs> yeah. So that's not one of my favorite conditions. And I was surprised to learn that there was a link to RA with that because it really doesn't seem to have anything to do with it. Um, then last, this past year, I was diagnosed with POTS, which is a postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. I think I got that right. You did. Um, and what this means for me, um, again, my case is pretty mild of that, uh, but I tend to have very low blood pressure. My normal range is around 90 over 60. And if I stand up too quickly, it will plummet. You know, it'll drop, you know, 20 points or so, and I get very dizzy, you know. And I, I've been lucky that I haven't had, you know, flat out fainting episodes. I just have ones where I kind of, everything goes dark and I have to sit down on the floor immediately, you know. And, um, Emergency lay down. That's exactly. what I like to call Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I get emergency lay down. Um, when I get my infusions, which we'll talk about later, the medication that I get for my um, RA, they have to do the infusion extra slowly. They give me an extra hour's worth of time, and they put an extra, like a double-sized bag of saline um, because the infusions have been known to make the blood pressure drop, like to 70 over 50 or things like that. And, um, you know, there have been a couple of scary episodes with that. So they're careful with me, you know, and they always monitor my blood pressure a lot because of that. Uh, so it's been a complication. Um, it also makes you very tired, you know, so there's, there's been that. And I'm sure I'm leaving one out. Um, <laughs> random little things like, oh, you, you mentioned know, you get migraines as well. Yes, yeah. um, I do. Uh, I have some cervical spine damage from the RA. So it was triggering cervicogenic headaches. But then those started triggering actual migraines. Mm -hmm. And so I have this unfortunate combination of, you know, real migraines with these neck tension headaches. Yeah. And I sometimes, yeah. So sometimes I'll get just one and not the other. Sometimes they come together. You know, it really depends. Yeah. Um, but those are not fun. And those also didn't appear until about a year or two after the RA diagnosis. You know, so that was not something I always had. Um, aside from that, I had a breast lump removed, but I really don't know what that has to do with anything, um, except for the fact that it turned out, and it just made me laugh, it turned out to be this unbelievably rare benign tumor, and I'm just like, you know, I'm so sick of hearing the words unbelievably rare. I know, yeah. <laughs> when it comes to my health that, you know, yeah. it was just kind of funny. Um, then there's things that are related to the drugs, like, for example, I was on a lot of prednisone in the beginning, trying to get the RA under control. Uh, so I developed um, adrenal insufficiency, and my adrenal glands kind of shut down, stopped working. Uh, That's always so fun. That was fun. So I had to wear a medic alert bracelet, you know, and carry emergency steroids in my purse and a needle, and uh, had a lot of trouble 
you know, getting out of bed and recovering. But, you know, fortunately, I did make a full recovery from that. That's great. But it was a warning sign and kind of told my doctor that we need to be very careful about me and steroids. Because, you know, I'm one of the lucky sensitive ones, Mm -hmm. you know. Again, if there's like something they say, well, this happens once in a while or this, you know, every now and then, I'm going to be the one usually who gets that complication. Right. It's it's funny. I'm just like, as you're talking, I'm like, I have that. Yep. I have that. that. Yep. Also that. Yep. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting one too. Oh, probably. I always do. Mm -hmm. Even when I'm at the doctor, they're like, anything else? I'm like, no. And then I get home. Yeah. I'm like, oh, forgot to mention this. This really big thing that's been bothering me for weeks that I completely forgot about. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, having some denial about uh, what what you have going on. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. So I'm curious about kind of how, how does that manifest and have you experienced denial from anyone else, family members, doctors, friends, that side of thing? Um, luckily, I didn't really experience it from the doctors. And I know that this is fortunate because I've talked to so many people, you know, who had the hardest time getting a diagnosis. And, you know, that's really painful to go through. And especially with the family history I've mentioned with the hypochondria and all this stuff, you know, that would have been a nightmare for me to go through years of thinking I was being a hypochondriac and not knowing. I was diagnosed within eight months, you know, of the symptoms starting, which is pretty short, you know, compared to most people. Um, I don't really know how long before that I actually had the disease, but, you know, eight months from the onset of acute symptoms, I had a concrete diagnosis in hand. And so the doctors were never in denial, and that was upsetting to me. You know, I kind of wanted them to be. <laughs> like, I, I wanted to be told this is not that big a deal, and nobody was saying that, you know, and it got a little scary. Um, my family probably had a little bit of denial, but it was more along the lines of you're going to be fine type denial, like, you know, where they come up with the hero stories of people mm-hmm. with disabilities who've done great things with their lives. and <laughs> So helpful. <laughs> so helpful. I just love those stories, which we can talk about more later. Yeah. Um, my own denial was incredibly complicated because it didn't look like denial. The first two years of it, the first two years of being ill, I was in total emotional denial and did not appear to be because I was doing research. You know, I learned all the facts I could about this and pretty much every other disease. That's how I know about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I knew all of my facts. You know, I knew the prognosis. I knew all of the treatments. I I understood what every code on my blood work chart meant. Um, I went online and joined the Arthritis Foundation support group and discussed things with them. You know, so it didn't look like denial. It looked like I was facing it head on. Mm -hmm. But it was further complicated by the fact that I was pregnant when I was diagnosed. Wow. And that meant that I could not be treated for the disease for the first year. So I didn't have to deal with the reality of any of the drugs, you know, with the exception of the steroids, which, you know, in the very beginning were necessary to get me under control. About 70, 80% of women go into remission during pregnancy with RA, and I was one of the lucky ones. So by the second trimester, I was feeling really good. Mm -hmm. So here I am saying, yes, I have RA, talking about it, researching it, and not believing it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, on this very basic level, um, because I felt fine and wasn't taking any medicine. And this went on, you know, for almost a year. Um, The baby was born, and within four months, I was completely incapacitated. You know, I couldn't get off the couch. I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. Like, my lungs had gotten involved, and, you know, I was having asthma attacks multiple times a day, you know, out of nowhere. 
um, getting shots in the soles of my feet and being laid up on the couch for two weeks. And, you know, it was, it hit hard, you know, and worse than it was before the baby, you know, it, so it came back hard and viciously. And so then that next year was spent navigating the denial part of it. Um, I started steroids and I gained 40 pounds within two months, you know, and got the big puffy moon face all of a sudden, yeah. didn't recognize myself. Um, and what really did it was I was also in graduate school at the time and oh I was God. doing a graduate program. Um, I was in residency during the summer and then doing it online during re the rest of the year. So, you know, almost a year would go by before I'd see the people in my graduate program again. And when I came back, after having gained all that steroid weight and walking with a cane, you know, and everything else, the look of shock on people's faces started to shake me out of the denial a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I was also weirdly silent about the whole thing. Like my family knew what was going on and one or two of my closest friends, but I absolutely would not tell anyone else. Like I just never, ever talked about it. And what really shattered it was having to go to the Office of Disabled Services at my school because there was going to be a four-hour exam where I was going to have to write longhand <laughs> and I knew that this was not going to be possible for me um, and also that I needed a parking permit you know because I was not able to walk uh, to class so I kind of you know spoke to my doctor and was really expecting him to say no because I had heard he was really tough with parking passes like he wouldn't give one to his mom when she asked you know okay. and she was like 90 with arthritis and the fact that he said sure so easily surprised and upset me and I think um, the defining moment was when I walked into the office of access and services for disabled students and the man behind the desk was blind so I walked in and said, oh my God, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. I'm completely fine. <laughs> you know, here's this blind guy. How am I going to explain to him why I need services and I'm walking around and, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. And so I sat down and started talking and he said, well, let's talk about what you need. Let's talk about what your condition is and let's talk about how things are. And I said, well, I don't really know what I need. You know, it's I have good days, I have bad days. Um, on good days, everything is normal. On bad days, I can't do anything, you know, and I don't really know when the bad days are going to come. And for the exam, mostly the prospect of writing longhand for four hours, I just don't think I can handle that, you know. So he set up accommodations for me to be able to take it on a computer and use voice-activated software, you know, which really saved my life. And then he said the thing that really shattered the denial. He said, you know, I, I feel sorriest for the students like you. And I'm staring at him and I'm thinking, the blind man feels sorry for me, you know. <laughs> like so the cognitive dissonance of that moment really struck me. And I said, why is that? And he said, because your disease is both progressive and unstable. You know that you're going to get worse. You know, you know that the future is not a good one. And it's unstable because from day to day you can't rely on how you're going to feel. And then he talked about his process of going blind, you know, which happened gradually over a period of years. And he said, the problem is you get used to a certain set of accommodations and then they don't work anymore. And then you get used to another set of accommodations and then they don't work. And he said, when I finally reached the bottom and was completely blind, there was relief, mm -hmm. you know, because now I knew, you know, what it was going to be and it was okay. But getting progressively sicker is terrible. You know, and when you're in the phase where every day is different from the last, you know, that's an awful place to be. So I went home and cried <laughs> for hours. And I think, 
you know, the combination of his sympathy, the fact that nobody laughed me out of the office and said, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, the fact that my doctor issued me a parking pass, you know, with the wheelchair on it, with no problem doing so, you know, my denial totally cracked that day. I was like, I can't not look at this anymore. Uh, so that was when, yeah, that was, I think, the first time I really faced it. And after that, my handling of it was different. Yeah. In what ways did that change? I started looking for ways to process it. I, I spoke to more people about it. I kind of talked about it too much probably for a while. <laughs> you know, went from total silence to, you know, telling more people. Um, I wrote songs about it. You know, I wrote three different songs about uh, the illness, you know, and, and processed it in that way and just kind of went through a deep grieving process that I think had to happen and that had been delayed for two years. Mm -hmm. um, an earlier defining moment that was that I managed to get over without quite the same amount of revelation was when I had to stop breastfeeding my son at four months, you know, when my rheumatologist sat me down and said, this can't go on, you can't walk, you can't breathe, you can't move, knock it off, you know, <laughs> we've got to get you on the meds. And the meds he was putting me on were incompatible, not only with um, breastfeeding, but with future pregnancy. Like they made that not a possibility because right. they were toxic. So there was some crying around that too, but um, somehow it, it didn't have the same effect as the blind guy feeling sorry for me did. Yeah. Sounds kind of terrible to say it that way. <laughs> no, I think that makes perfect sense. You know, like just because culturally our idea of like what a disabled person is is so narrow yeah that I didn't see myself that way at all exactly you know it's easier to kind of understand the challenges that might be involved in that whereas somebody with an invisible illness who right you know from the outside they might look normal even if you've gained 40 pounds of prednisone weight or or whatever even if you're using a cane it's still hard to yes really put yourself in that and understand how that might affect a person's life. So A very big surprise for me came a couple of years later when I was, um, because I was not telling anybody in my graduate program, I didn't tell anybody except the Office you know, of Disabled Services. I didn't tell any of my fellow students or professors. And they were all just kind of staring at me and I, I figured they thought I had just really let myself go after the baby. Um, and I made up an excuse about my ankle, you know, bothering me. And I thought they believed me, you know, and a few years later, when I finally did come clean about what was happening to one of my fellow students, she said, I knew you were really ill, you know, and she said, I wondered what was wrong, but you clearly didn't want to talk about it. And so that was hard too, realizing that I hadn't been as invisible as I thought. Right. Because I'm pretty invisible now, I think. <laughs> I don't think anyone can tell anymore. Yeah. So tell me about your relationship with medication. Do you have any mixed feelings about it? Definitely. Um, I, I wrote a letter to myself on prednisone once. <laughs> prednisone is one that I have really mixed feelings about. Oh, I think everyone does. Everyone does. Because, you know, when you need it, it's an absolute lifesaver. You know, it, it transforms everything. Um, if you're in really bad shape, you know, all of a sudden you're not. And that's a miracle. And it comes with the, a host of the most horrible side effects you can possibly imagine. And I got every one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, the adrenal failure, the giant moon face, the massive weight gain, the, you know, temper outbursts. Um, so I wrote a letter to myself once and I wrote, Dear me on prednisone, you're about to start another taper of prednisone. Please remember, the girl at Starbucks did nothing to, to you <laughs> that should make you yell at her. <laughs> 
your child is a sweet, loving child who doesn't deserve, you know, anger. You get the idea. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, you're going to want to do everything in the world, but have no mental focus. So here's a list of things you can do, you know, and I, it was very funny, but. Well, that's great. I, I mean, to be able necessary. to, yeah, to be able to kind of plan and have a contingency plan. Right. And when they you fell know, apart, you know, oh, <laughs> the they always do. Totally fell apart. But yeah, you know, I wrote, don't eat an entire pan of brownies, you know, and then I ate the whole pan of brownies anyway. Well, why wouldn't you? Exactly. <laughs> Um, so prednisone, yeah, I've been off it for years because it's now not a good idea, you know, mm -hmm. with my adrenal problems, and I'm grateful for that. Um, methotrexate, I have a very hard relationship with it because it's a cancer drug. You mm -hmm. know, that's what it was designed for. And some part of me can't quite forget that. Like, even though I take it in lower doses than cancer patients, it's still, you know, the word cancer just flashing over my head whenever right. I think of it. Plus, it makes me very sick. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I lose a day a week you know, and I take it on Saturdays, so I don't go out on Saturdays, you know, and then Sundays I feel hungover. Um, and it's the one that means I can't have another child, you know, as long as I'm on it. So that one was difficult. Um, my big gun is Remicade, which is an infusion drug. And uh, right now I'm on the maximum possible dose at the shortest possible interval. It took three years to get my disease under control. Um, and it took going to the absolute top you know, limit of that drug to make it happen. Um, so I go in once a month for an infusion. And again, that appears on all of my bills as chemotherapy, which mm -hmm. really upsets me. You yeah. Know? Um, plus you read the warning labels and the little boxes and, and then there are the drugs you have to take to manage the other drugs. Like I have to take Prilosec to keep my stomach from going crazy from the methotrexate and the anti-inflammatories. And then there's the drug for the bladder condition. And it just, sometimes it just, you know, sometimes I wish I could just chuck it all. Mm -hmm. um, but I also know from experience, you know, because I did go unmedicated for that whole year I was pregnant. And I had a lot of time to kind of chase down alternative cures and found they were not going to work for me, unfortunately. They, yeah. um, you know, for every story of a person who heals themselves, you know, by giving up gluten or by doing whatever, there's a hundred other people who don't. Right. And the person I'm most grateful to is a naturopath who I went to see looking for a miracle, um, who sat me down and said, you know what, anything we could do for you would take months to have any effect. And in the meantime, this disease is going to destroy your body, you know, so just don't, you know, just get on the drugs, just do it. And, you know, she said, we can do things to support your health. You know, I take probiotics, I take fish oil, you know, but she said, I'm sorry, you know, there's, there's not going to be a cure for you, you know, with, with your severity in this arena. I mean, so, you know, so many of us get uh, suggestions oh, from yes. people <laughs> that, you know, they, the person they're who's well giving, meaning. they're well-meaning, they're, they're trying to be helpful. It's and there's rarely... a subset of people for whom these things help. You right. know, it's just a much smaller subset than most people seem to know. Right. And the people making the suggestions don't really take into the take into account that most of us have tried that stuff already exactly if, if there's a cure I've heard of it or right. thought of it or tried it mm -hmm. and uh, there was one woman I remember I used to follow her blog she was absolutely convinced that he, she had cured her RA you know by going paleo and uh, cutting all these things out of her diet and she had been really meticulous about it and had eliminated all these you know food allergens and stuff and she felt fantastic and was really happy and then one day she was feeling a little twingy, went to her rheumatologist, and it turned out the disease had been continuing all along, just under the surface, destroying her body, mm -hmm. you know, and that was heartbreaking for her, you know, and for other people that had looked to that as helpful. Right. But yeah, I've had people tell me to take gin-soaked raisins, 
to eat sour one. cherries yeah. and to cut gluten. Gluten is a big one. People it's a huge love to one. tell you to give up gluten. Almost everyone I've talked to yeah. has, you know, and, and some of those people actually don't eat gluten because they found that that does actually help a bit great and but you know, it definitely didn't it didn't you know, help me them. at all like yeah. it, it did nothing for me and I, I had tests I don't have celiac and I'm not allergic to any of these things mm-hmm. so yeah I, I get a lot of suggestions for cures and and people really really fervently believe in them and mm-hmm. that makes it tough too because um, there's also a certain element of victim blaming there oh they're big time that yeah. you know you're just not trying hard enough. Exactly. And it must be something you're eating. It must be something you're doing wrong. In spite of the fact that, you know, the person next to you can stuff their face with Twinkies, you know, all day long. It, you know, it kind of puts yeah. an onus on you to really have this extremely restrictive diet or lifestyle that in the end, you know, makes no difference for my disease progression. Yeah. So, yeah, I've learned how to kind of nod and say, yes, I've heard of that one. Thank you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I still have a hard time not wanting to punch the person in the face. But that is difficult. I don't do it. Yeah. I, and I do not condone punching people in the face, but yep. sometimes and I want to. Gluten is the one where people get incredibly sensitive. Yeah. You know, because anybody who has real celiac disease, you know, um, has a reason to be up in arms about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of other people who just think that gluten is bad for everybody and for all conditions, and it's just not. So that's the one where I have the hardest time. A lot of people really feel that the fact that I'm still eating wheat is why I'm sick. Right. I want to make clear here that we're not saying that cutting out gluten doesn't work for anyone. It works for some people to some extent, and it's extremely important, as Kathy pointed out, for those with celiac disease. But that's not what we're talking about here. Each person is different, and different dietary changes work for different people. For example, when my stomach acts up, bread products are just about the only thing I can eat. But I know I have a problem digesting other things like corn and brown rice. Those are two of the main wheat substitutes used in gluten-free food, so a gluten-free diet doesn't make much sense for me. I've tried it, and it really didn't work for me. Again, that is for me. If it works for you, that is awesome. Please, get down with your gluten-free bad self. But what we're talking about here is how incredibly frustrating it can be to get the same uninformed suggestions for lifestyle changes over and over and over again especially when you've already tried those changes and it didn't make a difference for you. People get a lot of crap from every angle about their diets, so I'm really going to try not to do that here. Like I said about health in general, there are so many factors that go into shaping our diets, many of which are completely out of our control. Diet is, of course, important to health, and we'll talk about it, but I'm much more interested in just about everything else. Food allergies are disabilities, too, and it's not something to take lightly. Many people also find they have non-allergic reactions to things. So if somebody says they can't eat something, try not to be a jerk. But also, don't be a jerk about telling other people what they should or should not be eating. Unsolicited suggestions for lifestyle changes are almost never not annoying. So you're a musician. Mm -hmm. Um, How has your medical condition affected that? It was really one of the worst things that can happen to a musician. Um, It's also very stigmatizing. Um, Chronic illness, you know, in the music world, it's a terrifying thing because your livelihood depends on something incredibly physical. So I had a lot invested in hiding my disease, you know, and that was one of the reasons for my, you know, two, three year stretch of denial. (laughs) I still don't tell anyone I work with that I'm sick. You know, no one knows at work. Um, None of, you know, 
none of my students or families or, you know, anybody else that I work with or, or play with has any idea. And I intend to keep it that way. Um, in the beginning, I made the mistake of telling one work colleague, you know, in one particular place what was happening and all work immediately shut down from that quarter. Like I stopped getting calls, you know, from anybody associated with that group. Um, and that taught me a, a lesson, you know, really fast. So unfortunately, in the, in the music world, there's a real need to hide anything that could be perceived as disability or illness. It did change um, a lot of things for me, and that was also part of the grieving process. Um, I had some career dreams that I was working towards at the time that are absolutely not going to happen now. And they're just not, because they just require too much physical stamina. They were very performance-based and involved performing for like nine hours a day, you know, that kind of thing. Um, just not capable of it anymore. Uh, before I got sick, I was working, you know, a freelance life seven days a week and very random. You know, I, I taught Saturday mornings starting from 7.30 and then I'd teach a class, you know, Wednesdays until 10 o'clock at night and then I'd go perform, you know, two shows a day for four days a week and like looking back, I don't know how I did that. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> physically very taxing for anyone. It was ridiculous, yeah. you know, and there's just absolutely no way I could do that now. So the balance has turned much more towards teaching than performing. I still perform, but I have a lot of fears around it. You know, there's, there's always the possibility, well, what if that's the day I get a really awful flare? And I'm a little bit comforted by knowing that, you know, prednisone and shots exist so that if I absolutely had to, you know, I could make it through. But I also know my days are a little bit numbered. You know, there's, there's only so long that I'm going to be able to do that. Um, so there was grief in letting go of the big career dream, you know, the, the career I really wanted. And there's a lot of joy in the career I have now, you know, so once I got past the grief, it was good, but I had to grieve first. Oh, yeah. I think no one tells you that you need to go through a grieving process. And I wouldn't do it for a couple of years, yeah. you know, like I said, but... I didn't even realize it until I was having, like... I, one minute I'd be angry and one minute I'd be so sad and, mm -hmm. and I'd be like, you know what, I'm just going to act like this isn't a thing. And, yep. you know, and then I <laughs> stopped and was like, oh, I'm grieving. That's what this is. That's what this is. Those yeah. are the stages they talk about. Exactly. You know, and it's never like a linear nope. thing. It just kind of swings from one to the other, back to another. And, and there's bargaining. There's, you know, I'm just going to take these prednisone pills just this one day so I can get through this one performance and please let that be all right. And, mm -hmm. you know, and you make trade-offs and it's, it's hard. Yeah. I think writing the songs was a big part of my grieving because I'd never written a song before like oh, that. Yeah. Like songwriting is not part of what I do. Um, and it was a way of finding an alternative, like another musical outlet because the one I wanted was blocked off. Mm -hmm. Um, and that helped a lot, you know, taking something I loved and finding a different way to do it. If you stay tuned for the end of the episode, Kathy was generous enough to share those songs with us. I think that's really important to, you know, re, to not give it up entirely and, and to say like, okay, this is my life now. This is what I have to deal with. How can I continue to do this thing that I love right. within those parameters? And there were certain things I never did find a solution for. Yeah. You know, some things just fell away forever. Right. Can you, can you give me a snapshot of when somebody did something or said something that was very clueless or inconsiderate <laughs> about your medical condition? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, 
Uh, that's such a hard one because there are so many. I mean, there's there's all the cures that we talked about, people offering cures. Um, there was the person who told me that they had read a book by this doctor who claimed that uh, rheumatoid arthritis was psychosomatic. Oh, sure. And I said, yeah, okay, take a look at my lab work and my x-rays and, you know, explain how my brain is destroying my joints. You know, I, I'm interested in hearing about that. So I read the book and found out that he also thinks cancer is psychosomatic. So then I felt a little better. <laughs> But, you know, when I pointed this out, she was just like, well, you're just in denial. So I'm like, okay. Um, one that really made me angry, and it's a funny one. Um, um, so I had explained this spoon theory to somebody um, as a way of helping them understand what I was going through. And at the time, they appeared to take it in. And then sometime later, several months later, we were having an argument about something. And she said to me, you know what? this is a five spoon conversation and I don't have time for this. And I was like, how freaking dare you appropriate this? Mm -hmm. You know, this analogy that I gave you to understand a chronic illness that you don't have and how dare you turn it into a metaphor for normal tiredness, you know, normal anxiety. Yeah. It's, it's hard to explain why that made me so angry, but it was, you know, all she took from it was, well, I'm tired today, so I don't have spoons. Yeah, you know, and I I actually found the spoon theory because I I one day realized that when I say I'm tired, people have no idea what I'm talking about. Exactly. And so I googled how to explain how tired I am. Right. And that was how I came across it because it's just there's there's no comparison and there's really, I mean, no language to even. Mm -hmm explain to someone you know some people might experience that level of fatigue if they have the flu but they get to get up and they walk get to away get better at the end of it yeah exactly and so that made me very angry I thought that was incredibly insensitive to you know take and borrow as her own this language that did not describe at all you know what she was talking about yeah yeah the concept of tired <laughs> it's a big one yeah it's changed a lot what do you beat yourself up for oh gosh um being sick in the first place. Um, there's, you know, that dynamic with the grandparents, the hypochondriac versus the, you no, know, you walk around on the broken leg, you know. Um, I beat myself up for being sick at all. I beat myself up an awful lot for inconveniencing people. Um, I have to be driven to my infusions because they give me Benadryl, which knocks me out, and I'm also usually not feeling so great after. I feel guilty every single time, you know, somebody has to take care of me. Um, I feel horribly guilty that my son has food allergies because the allergist said to me, it's probably inherited from your autoimmune condition. Thanks for that. I was like, thank you so much. You know, I felt really good about that. Um, I beat myself up for a lot of things, you know, for potentially having set my son up, you know, for future autoimmune conditions, for not being able to provide him with a sibling. I mean, it goes on and on. Mm -hmm. um, for the things I can't do, for the things I probably could do but don't. You know, it's, um, I think a lot of beating up goes on. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I don't know, I could, I could probably go on, but that, you know, that about sums it up. There's just tremendous irrational guilt around the whole subject of illness. Right. Yeah. And like, and objectively, if you take a step back, it's like, I'm not actually responsible for this, but how do I not right. feel responsible? If I looked at somebody else, I'd, I'd see it differently, but I feel it's my fault somehow. Something I did you know, something that made this happen. Yeah. I actually blogged about that last week because I think it's something that we all kind of go through. Yeah. So what, what is it that you worry about? Like 
future-wise? Is there something big or little that takes up a lot of space in your brain? I worry about my son a lot. Um, he's young. I, I worry about his health future, although he's a pretty healthy guy, you know, except for the allergies. So crossing fingers that that stays true. Um, I worry about my ability to take care of him. Um, I worry he's missing out, you know, because I spend so much time, you know, lying on the couch or not able to run around, you know, like the other moms. Um, I worry a lot, and this one is very hard to face, and this one I'm only able to touch every now and then in a, in a surface kind of way. In the last few years, four people I've known, um, two who I knew personally and two more who I knew online, have died um, from RA. And, you know, people don't understand that. They, they hear RA and they say, it's arthritis. I mean, right. nobody dies from arthritis. Yeah, you just have achy joints. Right. But rheumatoid arthritis, you know, goes after everything, not just joints. And, you know, one woman developed lung nodules, couldn't breathe. You know, another had the lining of her heart attacked, you know, and had a heart attack and died. And some of the people who've died have been younger than me. Um, that's a very real fear, mm -hmm. you know, and... If I look at the st statistics, I know that I'll die probably younger than I otherwise would. Um, I push that one back a lot. <laughs> I can see why. But, you know, when a friend with, you know, who shares illnesses with me dies, it really scares me. Yeah, and it's a loss of your support system, too. There's also that. Yeah. There was one woman I feel especially, and this also, there's guilt and it's irrational guilt. Um, there was a woman who I knew in person who developed RA and came to me, you know, for help, basically. You know, friends introduced us. They said, Kathy has RA. You know, you can talk to her. She'll, you know, talk you through it. And I told her, it's going to be okay. And it was not. She died, yeah. <laughs> you know. And I know, what else could I have said? You know, and I talked with her very honestly about what it was like. I gave her an ear. You know, anytime she was in pain, she could call me and we could talk about it and she didn't have to hide anything. And I did what I could to support her. But in the end, I told her it would be okay and it wasn't. And I still feel some funny guilt about that. Yeah. So, yeah, there's that dark fear. Yeah. You know, and that one's hard to explain to people who don't see how you can die from arthritis. Right. Well, people don't really understand that, like, there's, for a lot of people with RA, there's organ involvement. Exactly. And that can escalate, you know. And, yeah. And, yeah. What are your goals and priorities with the management of your condition? Um, right now I'm in drug-induced remission. Yay! Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It, it took a long time. And um, another of my, yeah, going back to the previous question, one of my fears is that that's going to end at some point, you know, because it will. Statistically, it's going to end at some point. Um, and I'm already two years over the mark, you know, from when it usually when the meds usually stop working and you have to switch to something else. Um, so my goals are to hang on as long as I can, <laughs> you know, just keep this remission going um, as long as possible and use the energy that I have, you know, in ways that are productive, but that are not going to make me worse or make the remission end prematurely. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and kind of setting up a, a sensible sort of life. Like I do things like have my groceries delivered, have my house cleaned, you know, things that would have seemed like luxuries before. Mm -hmm. I look very carefully at how I spend my energy Yeah. now. Um, so those are my goals, you know, for managing is, is just to save my energy for the things that matter, mm -hmm. um, take advantage of the times that I'm feeling well in ways that don't hurt me because I used to overdo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so hard to 
you know, when you have a good day, not want to do all of these things that you've been unable yes. to do. And then <laughs> and I've pay done that for before. it for yeah. weeks afterwards. Yeah, I do that far more often than I'd like to admit. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I guess those are the goals in the management. You know, I'd, I'd love this remission to last as, as long as it can. Yeah. I hope it does. Yeah, I hope so too. Thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to In Sickness and In Health. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and stay tuned for everything we have to come. And check out our episodes celebrating Dysautonomia Awareness Month that are up right now. We'll be back with a new episode next Tuesday, and you can find us in your podcast feeds and on insicknesspod.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at insicknesspod. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And tell your family, tell your friends, tell your doctors. But most importantly, don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other. This is one of those songs Kathy talked about writing to process the grief of her illness. It's called Easy. steps are even you make it seem so easy your back is straight your hands are open and everything But in the morning I will wake with fingers curled and feet that wait to feel the broken glass. And you are out there somewhere moving through your day while I wonder, will I move today? And
This is the other song called Don't Let Me. Just how it has 
and sing their songs. I sit and dream about the life I used to know. It seems so long ago. Some way to 